From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Refugees from Afghanistan are starting to arrive in Colorado. Starting over in a new country is something that's all too familiar for a doctor in El Paso County who fled to the United States 40 years ago. It has become a human flood, a stunning horror story of the exodus of refugees from Vietnam. We'll get perspective on the challenges Afghan refugees face and the help that's available. Then, SUVs are popular in Colorado, but what's the trade-off when it comes to the environment? Think beyond the gas tank. Plus, an abandoned shopping mall, a supernatural family secret, and a protagonist who shuns comic book stereotypes. Representation of all kinds is really important, and sometimes just having a character that is representing some kind of otherness, just existing within the story itself, can be really helpful. When you support CPR, you help make it all possible. Over half of Colorado Public Radio's funding comes from voluntary individual donations. This drive, there are several new and updated thank you gifts to choose from, including member-only socks, aptly decorated with little radios, yours with a gift of $10 a month or more. Claim yours with your gift now at CPR.org. And thank you for making membership a priority. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Afghan refugees are arriving in Colorado from military bases around the country. Among the first of those refugees arrived yesterday. About 865 Afghans are expected to arrive in the state in coming weeks and months. Jamie Kaler Blanchard works with Lutheran Family Services on refugee resettlement. Hi, Jamie. Hello. I understand some Afghans came to Colorado right away this summer as the U.S. was pulling out, mostly those with family ties and the money to pay for a flight. But many are still at military bases waiting to be assigned or heading to different states. What are they doing while they're at these military bases? Yeah, so they are doing things, formal processes to... Uh, to finish their their immigration um, proceedings so that they can come to the different cities across the United States. And uh, they're also receiving vaccinations um, and then um, applying for employment authorization cards while they're there. And then there are NGOs on base and, and folks that are helping to kind of provide activities for people to do and, and basic needs Um, helping to make sure that they have basic needs covered, like clothing and, um, you know, basically trying to get them ready so that they when they get here, they have kind of the basic tools to get their new lives started. Can you tell us who arrived in Colorado yesterday? Yeah, so we have a couple. uh, I'm with Lutheran Family Services, and we are one of the three resettlement agencies that's here in Denver. So I'm just speaking kind of for the case that the cases that we're resettling. So um, we had a case that was a uh, single person who was who was joining a brother. And then we have um, a case of a couple that is arriving, I believe, today who's expecting a baby very soon. And then we just we're we're actually just starting to see travel bookings coming through. So we expect that here in the next few weeks that will kind of pick up. And like you mentioned, some folks have relatives in Colorado. Others are arriving on their own. What's your job when people first arrive at the airport? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we actually, uh, we in many cases, we actually meet them at the airport and pick them up. Um, and sometimes if they have a U.S. tie, which is that friend or relative, they'll they'll come to the airport as well. Um, we 
try to arrange, uh, we arrange housing with, uh, if they have a, that U.S. tie here, then we're in communication with that U.S. tie ahead of time to see, you know, if the plan is for, for the new family or the new person to stay with them, or if we need to find um, outside housing, uh, like an, an apartment or something like that. Um, so we're kind of making those arrangements ahead of time. Um, we've been working with a lot of community partners to make sure that we have basic needs covered, um, like, you know, obviously like food. We have actually um, Lutheran Family Services and African Community Center and some other community partners are doing um, home food delivery for some of our families. Um, and so we're just kind of making sure that all those basic needs are, are, are covered. Um, we also have um, furniture. And so we're, we, if we're putting them into an apartment, we make sure and that, that that apartment has all of the the needed furniture and household items as well. Right. Moving is hard even in normal times. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> when any refugee arrives to be resettled, there are certain cultural requirements outlined by the U.S. government. What does that mean and what are they? Yeah. So a lot of that is, of course, around language access. And so resettlement agencies in general, and I can tell you that, you know, this, that, that us and the other two resettlement agencies, we have um, staff who, who speak um, Dari or Pashtu, which are two of the main languages that um, these families will be, that they speak. Um, we've actually been resettling Afghans for quite a few years. Um, and so, you know, we are accustomed to working with people from Afghanistan. And so we have those structures in place to make sure that they're supported. So yeah, language is kind of, you know, one of the main tenets of, of ensuring um, cultural access and language access. But it's even down to um, we're required to provide what, uh, a culturally appropriate meal um, and culturally appropriate, culturally appropriate food when, um, when a family arrives. And so we ensure that, you know, we have items that um, that people want to eat and, you know, that are um, religiously, you know, that, that are acceptable for them, um, for their religious uh, requirements. And you've been working with refugees for many years, and the first family you mentored was actually from Afghanistan. Can you tell me anything about building that relationship? Yeah, so I volunteered with a refugee resettlement agency. It was about 18 years ago. And um, that was how I actually like first got into working in resettlement was as a volunteer. And I was matched with a family from Afghanistan and it was um, they're they're just super lovely people. I'm still in contact with some of them. Um, And I was my task was to kind of help them look for a job. Um, And so, you know, but it was really it's a cultural exchange. And so they taught me about their culture. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about American culture and looking for jobs. Um, and it was just, it was a really great experience. And I really am, am thankful that I have been able to stay in contact with them. And, um, and you know, they're, they're doing great uh, now that they've been here for, you know, they've been here for a long time. And they're members of our community, they're business owners, um, and they have their own families as well. And obviously, every resettlement experience is different. But what do you expect to be some of the unique challenges folks coming from Afghanistan right now face? Mm -hmm. Um, So this population is is a little different than than a lot of the refugees that we've resettled um, in, you know, in the 40 years that the resettlement program has been in existence as it is, um, in that they are very recently... um, they are very recently kind of have gone through that the the 
situation that has caused them to be refugees. So many times the refugees that we work with um, have been in camps, which certainly has kind of its own uh, its own type of trauma. Um, or, you know, they've been living in cities where they've kind of had forced, been forced to be underground and, and not be able to work, for example. Um, but, you know, they've kind of have been out of that particular situation for years or sometimes even decades because people have lived in refugee camps sometimes for, you know, 15 or 20 years. Um, whereas these folks who have been evacuated from Afghanistan have, you know, literally just weeks uh, ago or, you know, weeks or months ago have were, were fleeing those very dangerous conditions. And so um, we are going to, we're working with community partners to ensure that there's access to mental health services for them. Um, a lot of them also didn't have a chance to grab their personal belongings. And so we're also working with community partners to make sure that things like clothing and, um, you know, just kind of some of those very basic needs that that many of our other clients usually come with, um, we're, we're setting up those resources to make sure that they have access to those things. I hear you that there's a lot of recent trauma. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Jamie Kaler Blanchard works in refugee resettlement for Lutheran Family Services in Denver. Whenever a wave of refugees arrives in Colorado, like we're seeing from Afghanistan, it makes Dr. Vin Chung think of his own family's arrival in the U.S. from Vietnam more than 40 years ago. News reports from 1979 told stories of the experiences of families like his leaving on boats from Vietnam, often trying to get to Malaysia or other nearby countries. It has become a human flood, a stunning horror story of the exodus of refugees from Vietnam. The journey to Malaysia took 10 days or more in leaking, decrepit fishing craft with little food, little water, and no sanitation for the men, women, and children fleeing the communist regime that rules their country. Since he came to this country, Dr. Chung earned his medical degree and has worked with Lutheran Family Services to help with refugee resettlement. He lives in Colorado Springs and wrote the book Where the Wind Leads about his family's experience. Dr. Chung, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with a bit of your own story. You left Vietnam after the fall of Saigon. Like a lot of people, you left by boat. You were just three years old. Tell us what you know about leaving Vietnam. The U.S. was not your first stop. That's right. My mother was pregnant with me uh, when Saigon fell in 1975, and I was born eight months later. And uh, life for us there was just not sustainable. And so when I was three and a half years old, my uh, family left as refugees. Uh, that was the only way out of the country. And where did you go first? We wanted to go anywhere. Uh, as refugees, when we leave the country, it's a one-way trip. And our hope was actually to be admitted to a refugee camp in uh, Malaysia or Thailand or anywhere else, basically anywhere that would accept us. And uh, our journey ended up being a month-long journey that uh, led to a lot of uh, suffering and hardship. Uh, some people died. Uh, and at one point, we were in a fishing boat floating uh, aimlessly in the South China Sea. And uh, after about six days, uh, we were eventually rescued by World Vision. Wow. And how did you come to the United States? Well, we were hoping to make it to any country um, in the world, uh, but we were uh, eventually admitted to a refugee camp in Singapore where we stayed for about three months. And it was there that uh, we uh, were, our paperwork was processed and a small Lutheran church in Fort Smith, Arkansas sponsored my family. And so that's how I, I ended up in this country. You're very young. What are your first memories of life in the U.S.? 
Oh, um, I felt that um, it was all new. Uh, I felt that I didn't belong, uh, but it was exciting because in the back of my mind, there was always this optimism of what is possible in this country. And so my parents drilled in us that we had to, we had to do well in school because education was our way to, um, to, for social mobility. And that education was a way that uh, we could uh, arrive at the life that we want to live. And so I spent a lot of time in school. And I imagine that you've watched the coverage of Afghans trying to leave their country recently. Do those images bring back memories for you? It, it certainly does. Uh, when I, I saw images of people cramming into the airplanes, trying to leave in desperation, it, it brought back memories. And and I think that the, the, for me as a refugee, Having lived through that, I'm able to see that even though the military has withdrawn, life does not end for after a war is officially over. Uh, and so I see it as a an urgency that we need to respond in order to assist refugees leaving the country. But I also see it uh, from the perspective of optimism, because when I see refugee children, I, I see the potential for uh, future productive Americans in our community. You've worked with Lutheran Family Services over the years on refugee issues, and you fundraise to help with resettlement efforts. If you could pick one thing, what would you say will be a biggest challenge and also a biggest opportunity for Afghan refugees trying to get used to life in a new country? I think the biggest challenge is to see it not as a problem, but we see refugees as people. That's the first thing. And once we recognize them as people, full of potential, full of ability that we could see them as potential to bring diversity into our culture, especially here in Colorado. And uh, we could see them as uh, potential uh, workers in our labor force as well. And I've been very encouraged by the conversations I've I've had with my friends, my neighbors, and the churches here in Colorado Springs. Uh, People are jumping on board trying to find out what to do, how to help. And uh, so I see this more as an opportunity than, than anything. And would you say that the refugee experience, obviously there are so many and everybody's experience is individual, but has that experience changed since your family resettled? I think fundamentally is the same. Refugees are people who don't have a country to live in. So uh, being a refugee is one step beyond being homeless. You don't want to have a country that would allow you to sit on the street corner. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 And so my family has been there before, but it was through the generosity, the kindness of American people that has allowed me to become the, 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 the doctor that I am today and to, that has allowed me to become uh, a proud American that I am today. Dr. Chung, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Vin Chung came to the U.S. as a refugee more than four decades ago. He earned his medical degree and became a doctor who authored the book, Where the Wind Leads, about his family's experience. We spoke about his arrival in the U.S. and about challenges that might await newly arrived refugees from Afghanistan. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. A grove of aspen, all turning one vibrant color, is also a sign of something underground. Those hundred golden or fiery red trees are all one organism. A quaking aspen clones itself from its roots, sprouting shoots and suckers, and becoming an aggregate of genetically identical trees that can cover a hundred acres. A single tree may stand a hundred years, but the clone may last for thousands, doing best on gravelly slopes and quickly filling in areas wildfires have made bare. 
The wind blowing through aspens sounds like nothing else in the forest. A soft rustle of green on a summer day, or a dry rattle in winter with most of the leaves gone. And black fissures on the white bark of an aspen reveal what else has passed by. The marks of a bear, or deer and elk, or even shepherds alone in the high country a long, long time ago. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. The pandemic has brought on a new wave of workplace automation. There are more physical robots in warehouses like the ones we imagine from Wally and other movies. There are also more software tools that automate tasks like Slack or Microsoft Teams. This Thursday, I'll be talking about what that means for you and the economy at a live event with David Brancaccio. He hosts the Marketplace Morning Report. Join us at 4 o'clock for the closing keynote of Denver Startup Week. It's a free hybrid event, so you can stream it online or you can come in person. Just be sure to register online because space is limited. RSVP and get more information at denverstartupweek.org. We'll also put a link in the Colorado Matters podcast. Sport utility vehicles are as Colorado as Palisade Peaches or Broncos Orange. But their huge popularity has consequences for the environment and vulnerable people around them. Here's CPR's Nathaniel Miner. You know, it's 13 years old, but it looks pretty good. That's why we bought it. Javier de Castillo of Denver is showing me his newly purchased hybrid Lexus SUV. It's got leather seats, and because this vehicle is from 2008, a tape deck. <laughs> I kind of made, I, I, I've been looking for old mixtapes in the in a box in the uh, in the basement. I haven't found any yet. It's for De Castillo's teenage daughter. They were looking for a safe and reliable vehicle that could carry skis, dogs, and the whole family. And this one fits the bill. We moved back here uh, 18 years ago, in large part to camp, to hike, to ski. You know, to do all the things that a lot of people do in the mountains. SUVs have been popular in Colorado for a long time. But that's really taken off in the last decade or so. Industry data shows trucks and SUVs now account for 86% of new vehicle sales in the state so far this year. That's second only to Vermont. The benefits are clear to people like De Castillo. But there are less talked about downsides to Colorado's love affair with SUVs and trucks. This past summer, I visited a beautiful mountain valley just outside of Crested Butte. It looks like a scene from a truck or an SUV ad. And it turns out people were treating it that way. What are we looking at here? Uh, so these tire tracks, um, you know, driving off into this meadow a little bit. Jake Scott with the Crested Butte Conservation Corps points at two parallel lines. They slice through a field of wildflowers. High-clearance SUVs and trucks can make it to places that cars can't. And Scott says drivers seem to justify the damage they're doing. Someone sees these tire tracks and they're like, okay, like, Somebody already drove here, I can drive on this, and they'll go like a little bit further. And this will happen all summer long, over and over and over again, until uh, then there will be a road there. The Forest Service says they've seen more damage like this recently across the country, as more people have gone outside looking for adventure. Scott and his crewmates actually line the roads here with giant boulders to keep vehicles out of vulnerable areas. 
Still, this is where SUVs really shine, up in the high country. But what about in cities, where they're more likely to share space with pedestrians? Well, their bulky size makes them safer for people on the inside, but deadlier to people on the outside. If the front end of the vehicle uh, is higher, you're likely to, to strike the person in vital organs or cause the head injury, uh, which are much more likely to be fatal. Justin Tyndall is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Hawaii. He recently studied thousands of pedestrian deaths across the country. Whereas when uh, there are more cars on the road, being struck by a car is still quite bad, but it's, uh, it's much less bad than being struck by a larger vehicle because the point of impact is uh, usually on um, the person's legs. Tyndall says there are other factors, like distracted pedestrians and drivers. But the problem is growing. Pedestrian deaths have more than doubled in Colorado in the last decade. Data from the Denver area shows that most fatal crashes that kill pedestrians and cyclists now involve SUVs, trucks, and other large vehicles. Adoption of larger vehicles has been even more rapid in Colorado than the average in the U.S., and uh, the rate of pedestrian fatalities has gone up considerably as well. Industry insiders say better technology could make future SUVs safer for pedestrians. They also say future SUVs will be better for this last issue I'm going to tell you about, climate change. Some SUVs aren't the gas guzzlers their ancestors were. And electric SUVs are even cleaner. Automakers like Volkswagen are advertising them as good for the environment. Introducing the all-new Volkswagen ID4, created net carbon neutral. But ads like this are misleading. Alexander Malavanov is a researcher in sustainable transportation at the University of Toronto. They are not great for the environment. Electric vehicles are less worse for the environment. Malavanov says SUVs are still typically less efficient than cars because they're heavier. The greenest thing to do is to bike, walk, and take public transit. If you need a car, he says you should get the smallest, most efficient one you can. I ran all this by Javier de Castillo, who just purchased the Lexus. He says he cares about pedestrian safety and the environment a lot, but he also likes the lifestyle his SUV enables. He says his next vehicle will almost certainly be electric, and because he already has an SUV, he's thinking it'll just be a car. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. Grief can be a winding journey. In the comic book Grieving Mall, a daughter searches for closure after her estranged mother dies. It's the latest story from graphic novelist R. Allen Brooks. He teaches writing for Regis University's MFA program and Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Visual artist Sarah Menzel Trappel of Aurora is the illustrator. We spoke in August. Yeah, it's sort of a, a magical realism story about a woman who's experiencing grief and trying to reconnect with her strange mother. So it, it's sort of a meditation on grief. And where did the seed of this story come from for you, Alan? You know, um, about a decade ago, my mother almost died. Thankfully, she's, she's well now. But it made me want to process through my art and think about sort of how to prepare for really heavy grief. And, and of course, I never quite figured that part out. But one of the things I did figure out was how much people regret leaving things unsaid when someone dies. And that's kind of where I started with this story. Hmm. And Sarah, you told Alan that you wanted the main character in this story to be plus-sized. Tell me a little bit about why that was important for you. Well, I think before working on Grieving Mall, I was having a hard time connecting to my creativity. And I think in part that was because I was drawing a lot of industry standard body types. And that's not my experience. I'm a plus size person. 
So it was just an idea. I thought maybe drawing a plus size character would kind of help me move through some of this creative block that I was having. And um, it was really interesting because through the process of drawing this plus size character, I think it helped me address a lot of my internalized fat phobia that I kind of held over the years, you know, growing up as a bigger kid, you know. I found the whole experience of creating this project just sort of a meditation for me in that way as well. And part of the thing here is, Lorraine, this is the character, the story is not about her body. It is about her journey of trying to connect with her estranged mother. How is it to draw a character who has this thing that you share and that resonated with you, but the story is not about that? Well, I think representation of all kinds is really important. And sometimes just having a character that is representing some kind of otherness just existing within the story itself can be really helpful. And I think seeing more of those kind of characters who aren't, you know, the focus of the story is not their trauma um, can be really good for anyone to see. And, um, you know, I think Lorraine has a lot of problems in the story, but her body type isn't one of them. And I think that's really nice to see because in the media, oftentimes bigger bodied characters that is like a huge aspect of their storytelling is you know how they experience their body and um for me i think growing up it would have been helpful to see characters who were plus size bigger bodied just existing and dealing with their other problems so that's kind of why i really enjoy her as a character alan tell me about how you're thinking about that representation yeah, you know, I think if uh, if I'm writing a story and who a character is demographically, if that's as far as I've gone to define them, then I might be well on the way to writing a bad story. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I think we're all so much more than the bodies we happen to be born in. Certainly, the bodies we were born in influence the way we experience the world and influences the way people react to us. But if in the telling of a story, I can't go any deeper than that, then, uh, I, you know, I think that's a problem. And I, I mean, I think that's a problem in real life if you don't see people beyond the bodies they were born in. I also want to talk about some of the striking places in this story. This book gets a title from an abandoned mall where Lorraine and her classmates hit a time capsule when they were kids. Alan, why did you set the climax of this story at a derelict shopping mall? <laughs> well, you know, uh, a lot of times when I ask an artist what they want to work on, I, I start with what kind of things they want to draw. And Sarah kind of gave me an idea of what sort of backgrounds and settings were interesting to her. But also over the years, I've been seeing these tumblers where like people break into old abandoned malls and take photos. And, you know, it's just very interesting to me how malls represent, they used to be such a center of life and connection and community. And now a lot of the ones that have been abandoned throughout the country represent like the passage of time, loss, you know, kind of what used to be. And I think that forms a really cool parallel for a person who's grieving. Yeah. And it's even kind of spooky. Sarah, tell me about the, I mean, it's not, this is a magical surrealism, but there's kind of a horror element here too, right? Yeah. I gave Alan a whole bunch of horror comic references because I also really love reading horror comics. And um, I think he kind of incorporated some of that into the storytelling, which I really appreciated. There's a lot of mood building, and I really tried to reference some of my favorite artists a bit with the inking, at least, so that it would kind of incorporate some of those interests of mine as well. 
The story isn't about COVID-19 at all, but you created this story about grief in the midst of a pandemic. How did that affect the way that you thought about your work, Sarah? I think we all have felt a lot of grief throughout the pandemic. And, you know, in my personal experience, I lost my grandmother due to COVID pretty early on. And, you know, when we were creating this comic, I was definitely thinking about that and just I was still processing it. I think I still am. So, you know, I think it's a good time for this comic to come out. I think a lot of people, even if they haven't lost someone, are still dealing with the grief of just dealing with this every day and hearing all the stories. So I think it's a good time for it to come out. I hope that people can connect to it beyond just the story that Grieving Mall is about and they can kind of see that it's a product of the time as well. I'm really sorry about your grandma. Alan, tell me about how this time and this pandemic were in shaped the way that you were thinking about grief and what you want readers to take from this story. You know, um, I, I think one of the biggest things that for me was uh, isolation, you know, seeing, you know, I'm, I'm fundamentally an introvert, so I kind of like being alone, but just seeing how much isolation affected people so negatively and how, what it was like to be cut off, you know, from people and that feeling of isolation definitely crept its way into this story. So, you know, it's a character who's relatively successful in her life, but doesn't seem to have any really close connections. And uh, I think for people who are reading this story, I want them to feel that the, the, the relationships that they have been cut off from, sometimes they can take a step forward, hmm. reach out and reconnect. Well, I want to thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Grieving Mall is a comic book written by R. Allen Brooks of Denver and Sarah Menzel Trappel of Aurora. Trappel is a visual artist. Brooks teaches writing for Regis University's MFA program and Lighthouse Writers Workshop. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.